Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, we'll speak with Joan Walsh, and we also have D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation, with the magazine's Case for Bernie. First up, Super Tuesday, of course. Trump Watch starts right now. We turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hello, Harold, and what the heck happened on Tuesday night? What the heck, indeed. I, I think Lazarus had his Jesus, and uh, Biden apparently had his Jim Clyburn. And, uh. and if you compare the two, I mean, Lazarus didn't actually, you know, win Texas. So I, <laughs> I, I think Biden's resurrection might have been even even more remarkable. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> you know, the big surprise to all of us here is that we have always argued, you know, for half of our lifetimes, that what counts in politics, the way you win campaigns is with the ground game, with the door-to-door work, the face-to-face contact, people talking to their neighbors. You shouldn't rely on TV. Forget the consultants. But Joe Biden won with a campaign that was barely existed, in fact, didn't exist in some of the states that he, he carried. Joe Biden didn't do any of this. And it all happened so fast. And of course, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have had very impressive volunteer and paid staff organizations going for over a year now. I guess we have to change our view of how politics works in America after Super Tuesday. Well, it's not it's not just the, the limits of the ground game, it's the limits of the air game. Uh, let's, yeah. let's remember, you know, the, the, the candidate who was most omnipresent, though not on the ground, though in some ways also on the ground, in all the Super Tuesday states, was Michael Bloomberg, who is now an ex-candidate, who spent more money uh, on, on Super Tuesday than any presidential candidate has ever spent on anything, and, and got completely wiped out, for which... You know, I mean, it was the fact that he had to actually appear as himself. It was a big mistake uh, in the <laughs> debates, and, and Elizabeth Warren just eviscerated him and uh, set him up for Joe Biden to drive a stake through his heart on Tuesday. So it, it's not just the limits of the ground game, it's the limits of the air game. But, you know, I mean, you have to deal with mass psychology on this one. Yeah. And mass psychology of, uh, I would argue, a clear plurality and probably a majority of, of, of the Democrats is, God, we need someone to beat Trump. And when Biden uh, did so spectacularly well in South Carolina, what, what he had at that point over the last three, four days that trumped, uh, no pun intended, the, ga- the both the ground game and the air game was the zeitgeist game. He was, yeah. he appeared to be the guy who could beat Trump. And under this special set of mass psychological circumstances, the absolutely correct fear and loathing of the president, that powered Biden to, uh, to a victory. It, it wasn't ideological. One of the most striking things, if you go down into the exit polls, was that every state where people voted, and when they were asked, do you support a Medicare for all system, even if it eliminates private insurance, a majority said yes. Well, that's Bernie's position. So it wasn't that Biden was elected, won all those states, on the basis of his superior positions to Bernie. It was the whole psychology of electability. 
Of course, what was at stake there was not only two radically different political agendas, but two radically different strategies for the Democratic Party of the future. Bernie, of course, said we must expand greatly the voting base of the Democratic Party. We must bring in millions of people who haven't voted before, young people and people of color who are should be the base of the Democratic Party and who are much more progressive than their elders. Biden's kind of campaign, the establishment campaign, is that you compete for the likely voters, the people who always vote. They're older. They're more uh, middle class. And it seems like uh, it was the likely voters who carried the night rather than uh, Bernie's uh, greatly expanded party. <laughs> the problem with Bernie's greatly expanded party is it didn't greatly expand. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that highlights what I think is a real division in the party, which is in some ways more generational than anything else. If you look at how Biden and Bernie performed in the different age groups, it's not just that Bernie completely dominated voters under 30. Outside of the states with very heavy African-American Democratic electorates, Bernie dominated voters under 45. I mean, if uh, Biden didn't break 20% among that group in, in, in virtually any, any non-Southern state. And in California, he only got 8% of voters under 45. <laughs> Bernie, conversely, uh, did terribly among voters his age, 65 and, uh, and over. And I, I think in many ways what you're dealing with is it's, it's voters under 45 who have experienced the large dysfunctionality of American capitalism yeah. disproportionately, plus which that's a, a group which uh, a significantly higher representation of Latinos, which is one, one group that Bernie did very well in yesterday. And, and, and so for both candidates, how to reach over that divide is a, uh, is a crucial question, because if either were to become the nominee, and it's certainly certain that one or the other will, most likely Biden, but one or the other will, he is going to need to cross over that age divide if he can uh, to amass enough votes to beat Donald Trump. Well, let's talk for a minute, at least, about the fact that it's not over yet, that there's some very big primaries yet to come right away, as a matter of fact. If you were advising the Bernie campaign in Michigan, uh, what would you suggest he needs to do? I would say Joe Biden supported every trade deal that gutted uh, your economy and took the middle class out of Michigan. And I, Bernie Sanders, opposed all those trade deals. I would say that. I would emphasize that at a time when there's something called the coronavirus, Medicare for All is not only the superior program, but an urgently needed program. So I would I would double down on uh, uh, on those and, uh, you know, see, see where it got me. In your piece uh, for the uh, American Prospect Online, you, you pointed out that in Biden's Super Tuesday victory speech, he paid tribute to the uh, Boilermakers. I thought that was a telling point. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. By, uh, unlike his South Carolina victory speech, which is really masterful, he was, <laughs> he was understandably elated last night. He was having one of the greatest nights in American political history unlike any he has ever remotely experienced before. And so he just started doing free association, which for Biden may be more uh, revelatory than, than he intends. And he was, you know, affirming the, the base, you know, saying how he would champion the 
sort of the basic groups in the democratic universe, the dreamers, immigrants, uh, workers. And when he went into workers, suddenly uh, he took a power dive into the 1950s. He listed the iron workers, he listed boiler makers, and, 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 and so on. And it's not that we shouldn't affirm the importance of such workers, but he kind of left out the, the majority of, of workers, the fast food workers, the retail workers, the teachers, the nurses, majority female not in old industries. You know, one of the things about Trump is that when Trump talks about the economy, he talks as if this is still sort of a coal and steel-dominated economy. And when Biden talks about workers just spontaneously, he's dredging up occupations which kind of have vanished and actually have lost all meaning to, like I said, voters under 45. What the hell is a boilermaker? Yeah. So this is illustrative of a number of things but also just sort of illustrative of the gulf between sort of where Biden's head is at and where younger, younger voters are at. A friend of mine emailed me, because uh, I was going back and forth with him on this, and said, well, at least he didn't thank the president of the AFL-CIO, George Meany. Uh, oh, so oh, there, there you have it. You know, you, you and I and a lot of our listeners live in a world where for the last six months uh, the debate has been Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, which would be the stronger candidate who's better at governing. And, and I, I think we need to talk at least for a minute about what happened to the Elizabeth Warren campaign. The argument for her was always a pretty good one. She has pretty much the same positions as Bernie, but she would be better at governing. She'd be a stronger candidate because she's a Democrat, because she was younger, and because she was a woman. What turned out to be wrong with that argument? She had sort of the best policy chops uh, and policy shops yes. <laughs> of, uh, of, of any Democratic candidate, and I, I think would have been the best president. What she didn't have was the best political chops and chops, as it were. Mm-hmm. Among other things, there's one very smart article, I forget where it ran uh, in the last two days, saying she could have come across as the hardscrabble Oklahoma kid who managed, you know, in a kind of uh, a really total merit, meritocratic way to become a, a, huge, uh, a huge success, but with real, real working class roots, as much as any Democratic candidate in a very long time. Instead, she, she really came across as a Harvard professor, which is far less appealing, I think, particularly if you're a woman. Her weakest constituency, if you just looked at all the polls throughout the whole campaign year, was working-class men uh, of all races who, mm-hmm. you know, had had probably didn't think all that fondly about the uh, women who had been their school teachers. And uh, she never got past that, so I think this is some sexism, but also some really clumsy messaging on her part. Bill Clinton, despite a a somewhat dissimilar example, but not all that dissimilar in terms of his biography, Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law graduate, but he, you know, came across as uh, the kid from Hope, Arkansas, uh, you know, with with humble roots and all of that. And he he sort of knew what to market in his past and, and what not. And I think... Unfortunately, and I guess what is hindsight, uh, she, she didn't do that, and I think that was a big mistake. Well, one way of looking at what happened was that the voters acted on their sense of who would be best at beating Trump. Another way to look at it is that the Democratic establishment reasserted its 
control over the party. They had decided a year ago that Biden should be the candidate to face off against Bernie. And, of course, a lot of things happened to make to put that into question. And for a while, it was kind of an open question that the establishment had lost its grip and that its candidate uh, was failing. But Trump always believed that he had to get dirt on Biden. And, and in fact, he got himself impeached trying to get dirt on, on Biden. So at this point, let us say, it looks like everything that's happened in the last year has simply fulfilled the plans of the Democratic establishment and Donald Trump. Well, up to a point. Remember, the Democratic establishment didn't really come around to Biden un- until South Carolina, which was all of four days ago. They would have if he had been running a strong campaign and looked like a, a, a winner and a strong candidate, but he didn't. So the Democratic establishment was, con- you know, I mean, remember, before, up, up, into, up until election night in South Carolina, Biden had almost no money. So uh, the establishment was out there as a source of potential energy, but it didn't know where to go. Then, after South Carolina, he's the establishment choice, but, you know, he also, because of the electability issue, uh, became the choice of certainly more rank-and-file Democrats than, than anyone else. Um, so if it was the establishment versus everyone else, uh, that wouldn't have worked. But uh, the establishment and a hell of a lot of voters took the same message uh, from South Carolina. And that's, uh, that's where we got to last night. So Biden has two big things that he's happy about this morning. One is the 382 delegates, at least as of Wednesday morning, that he won. And the other one was the one sentence that Michael Bloomberg said on Wednesday morning, I will work to make Biden president. How big is that? It's a lot of money. There's a question as to whether Bloomberg's commercials will go after Bernie Sanders. I I think if it does... Biden needs that like a hole in the head. Yeah. Um, that would that would drive a, a deeper rift into the potential Democratic electorate who, who support Biden needs across the board. Other than that, there's some downside to it, but I think the upside exceeds the downside. Bloomberg supposedly has this uh, incredibly sophisticated, advanced big data operation which can respond instantly to changes in instantly determined voter sentiment didn't really work for him during uh, his own campaign. It didn't work at all, but it's an interesting question as to whether it would have worked had he only been an electronic presence, had he not gone on to yeah. the debate stage. Yeah. If you look at the votes, uh, early voting in some states, he, he clearly did better with early voting than anyone who voted in the last uh, week or so, and certainly anyone who voted after South Carolina. Uh, look, it, it, it's a great thing that Bloomberg spent all this money on himself and got clobbered. I mean, yeah. that's affirming of a basic principle of democracy that, you you know, there's a limit to what can be bought. Unfortunately, a lot can be bought in, in, in our democracy, but not, not everything. He did carry American Samoa. Yes. Well, that was easily bought. There were only like 500 people voting, and he had seven staff uh, there. So the, the ratio of, of, of staff to voter was, uh, was, was incredibly high. Uh, he, ca- he carried American Samoa, and, uh, and, and Tulsi Gabbard came in second. I mean, you know, that's, uh, 
Uh, there's no question that Bloomberg, if he wanted to, could have bought American Samoa outright and probably any number of larger islands. But, uh, uh, he, he, you know, he, he did enough to, to carry it. In conclusion here, is is the nomination of Joe Biden and the first ballot uh, decided now, or is there still some work to be done? Uh, there's still some work to be done, and, and, and among other things... He and Bernie are going to go on in, into one-on-one uh, still debates going forward. Uh, and Bernie is much better on the debate stage than Biden is. And Bernie, uh, can, you know, can call out all of Biden's questionable votes, of which there are a number. Though, uh, you know, I'm sure Biden will call out some of Bernie's votes on guns. So this is tricky. He, he can't revert to being sort of the stumbling guy in the debate stage. Uh, that would weaken his electability argument. But if he, if he can sort of hold his own, I think he's certainly the likely nominee, not the definite nominee. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. We recorded the following segment on Super Tuesday before any results had been reported. The nation has endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. For comment, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of the magazine. Don, welcome back. Thanks, John. Great to be back. Well, tell us about the thought process that went into this endorsement. Sure. Well, you know, as your listeners will know, the nation has been advocating for both Sanders and Warren for months now uh, because we think they're both genuine progressives and because we we saw a great deal to admire in both of their campaigns. And indeed, I wrote an editorial some weeks ago advocating for a joint ticket. So what has changed? Well, one thing that's changed is that we've now had uh, the four early state primaries Uh, And we know the shape of the field. And uh, another thing that's changed is that we decided that if we were going to have an impact in endorsing, we wanted to endorse before Super Tuesday uh, because we wanted to have, you know, the possibility of shaping people who were still undecided. Uh, We also held a debate here in New York on Monday between Sanders supporters and Warren supporters at the New School that had you know, several hundred people in the room, but it had hundreds of thousands of people watching it online. And then we had staff meetings where we discussed this, and we had an editorial board meeting here at The Nation on Friday. So it's been a long process. And where we came out, as you can tell from the headline of the endorsement, is that we endorsed Bernie Sanders and his movement. And those last three words are crucial to our thinking in the endorsement and in this election. You know, there was plenty of time for intellectual debate as to who might make a better candidate or president, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. We felt that those were the only two that our readers would be likely to consider because they were both the progressive candidates in this race. But that is not the moment we're in. You know, we're in a moment where Sanders is the front runner. He put together a broad-based, multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition in Nevada, which included many voters of color, 
and that's uh, so far a unique achievement in this season, uh, and certainly something that Warren has signally failed to do. So given that the three candidates who have actual plausible pathways to victory and to the nomination are Sanders, Bloomberg, and Biden, uh, we felt it was time to weigh in on the side of Bernie Sanders. And his movement, which is what gives him a pathway to victory, and indeed has brought him this far. Let's talk about going into Super Tuesday, what Bernie had already achieved. Bernie demonstrated that you can really wage a viable competitive campaign without relying on wealthy donors, corporate funders, or PAC money. And if he'd only done that, he would have changed political history. But he did a lot more than that, as we know. You know, he, he shifted the discourse farther left than any other candidate for president since Franklin Delano Roosevelt's second term. So that, remember, in, in the Obama administration, the public option was too far left to be considered. Now the public option is the refuge of moderates, and the progressive choice is Medicare for all. But it's not just Medicare for all. It's the Green New Deal. It's free public higher education. It's cancellation of student debt. It's housing as a human right. These are all issues which Bernie Sanders has dragged onto the political agenda. The nation endorsed Bernie four years ago. Uh, Is anything different this time? Well, I think in many ways everything is different this time. Four years ago, the question was, do you want four more years of Obama, or do you think we should go for something more radical? This time, the question is, who can beat Donald Trump? And can you beat Donald Trump by promising four more years of Obama, which is the best that Biden can promise? Uh, And is that promise, first of all, is it credible? And second of all, is it going to really persuade enough voters, you know, didn't we try that with Hillary Clinton? And how do you prove electability? Because, you know, electability is one of those terms that people always throw around when they're basically trying to say, well, yes, but I still prefer this candidate to your candidate. You know, the Democratic way to prove electability is to run for office and get the most votes. And at this point, Bernie Sanders has done that. Where does that leave the Elizabeth Warren supporters who had a perfectly good argument that while she has the same policy goals, she would be better at governing. She, of course, is younger, and it would be great to vote for a woman. Is that debate over now? Well, we don't close the door on that debate. Look, I'm not going to tell anybody who wants to vote for Elizabeth Warren that they shouldn't or that they're wasting their vote. And I'm frankly not going to argue with anybody who thinks that Elizabeth Warren might make a better president than Bernie Sanders. I mean, You know, you can argue both sides of that question. I don't think there's any dispositive (laughs) way to settle that question. But I think what is different and what is settled is who has appealed to voters successfully, and more than that, who has assembled a movement to carry their campaign through the primary process, through the conventions, and to defeat Donald Trump. And on that, I'm afraid there is no more disputing between Sanders and Warren. So the question for Warren supporters at this moment is really the oldest question in politics, which is which side are you on? Well, the nation endorsement says Sanders has two weapons that none of his competitors can match. What are they? One of those weapons is consistency. As we've seen, Joe Biden has been willing to lie about getting arrested Uh, to help the black freedom struggle in South Africa. He claims he was arrested. He's claimed several times he was arrested after going to see uh, Nelson Mandela or to try and help Nelson Mandela, which turns out to be false. 
But Bernie Sanders was actually arrested in the American black freedom struggle before Joe Biden was old enough to vote. You know, he's been saying, as everybody knows, he's been saying the same things for 30 years. And I think in, in a field where you've seen somebody like Pete Buttigieg, who's willing to say one thing one day and another thing the next day, the fact that Sanders hasn't changed his tune is actually an advantage and a great comfort to people because they trust him. So that's one of the weapons. And the other weapon he has is the movement, you know, that he really has brought together this working class movement of women and men of all races, of all faiths and none, who are prepared to stand up and demand economic justice. Well, the nation endorsement highlights Bernie's commitment to expanding the electorate as kind of the the fundamental task of the Democratic Party. But several pundits have pointed to evidence in the last couple of days that while Bernie has gotten the most votes of all the Democratic candidates, the total number of his voters is not expanding compared to four years ago. Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times wrote on Super Tuesday, to prevail in November with Bernie, Democrats would need unheard of rates of youth turnout. Young people, of course, are the least likely to register and vote. And so her conclusion is by nominating Sanders, Democrats would be trading some of the electorate's most reliable voters, she's talking about older suburban moderates, for some of the least reliable young people who haven't voted before. Did the nation's endorsers uh, consider this issue? That point of view is based on either a lie or a false premise. I mean, let's start, let's start with the part that simply isn't true. If you look at the, the vote totals in a primary that Bernie Sanders lost in South Carolina, okay, his total went up by 10% over 2016, whereas Biden in South Carolina got fewer votes than Hillary Clinton got in South Carolina. It, it's true that Bernie's theory of change, as he always says, depends on massive turnout. And it's also true that if he doesn't produce massive turnout, he's not going to win enough primaries to be the nominee. I mean, that's not something you have to like argue about. You can just watch and it'll either happen or not happen. Right. But it's also true, and it's important to point out, that while Bernie's theory of change may be flawed, nobody else has a convincing theory of change. I mean, Biden's theory of change is, despite being tarred with being the servant of the banks and credit card companies, despite being the man who eulogized Strom Thurmond, and despite you know all his many disadvantages that make him a worse candidate than Hillary Clinton, he can run a Clinton-esque campaign and somehow beat Donald Trump because after four years, people were sick of Trump. I mean, if you talk about a long shot or a crackpot theory, that seems to me to be a crackpot theory. So sure, Sanders' theory of victory has a vulnerability, which is that it relies on large turnout. I would argue not just on large youth turnout, but for example, large Latinx turnout. Are those people really going to turn out for Mike Bloomberg or for Joe Biden? We shall see. So in the end, what, what is the fundamental question of this election for the nation? We live in an age of state repression and voter suppression. And yet the fundamental question remains for all of us, the oldest one, which side are you on? The nation is on the side of hope, not fear. We're on the side of radical change, not retrenchment and retreat. This is an amazing, terrifying, 
exhilarating and potentially empowering moment. And we think that voting for Bernie Sanders is the best way to seize this moment, to endorse his movement, and to move towards justice. Don Gutton Plan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be on, John. Thanks. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch Podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Next up, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for the nation and a political analyst at CNN. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. Well, the pundits are all saying that the turning point in this historic night was on Saturday when Joe Biden won that blowout in South Carolina, 30-point blowout, completely unexpected. And the pundit said there's one reason that Joe Biden won big in South Carolina, and that was because of the endorsement of Jim Clyburn. I had no idea that there was a kingmaker in South Carolina, but now everybody says this is the key to everything that's happened in the last week. He's the highest-ranking African-American in the House. One poll found that 61% of Democratic voters said Clyburn's endorsement was an important factor in their decision. I know you spent a lot of time in South Carolina uh, leading up to their primary. What did you see of this? I think it's exactly right. The pundits are almost always wrong, but they're, they're absolutely right about that. To some extent, Jim Clyburn was a queenmaker in 2016. Uh, he had had a falling out with the Clintons in 2008 because they perceived him, I don't know if it was correct or not, he stayed neutral in that race, but they perceived him as favoring Barack Obama. Bill Clinton made some, you know, ill-advised comments about it. But by 2016, Clyburn had put that behind him and came out in advance for Hillary Clinton. Uh, and she won the black vote 86-14 um, in South Carolina, John. I have to say, another part of the equation is I have a lot of respect for Bernie Sanders. He ran a better campaign in South Carolina, reaching African Americans. Uh, his state director was a black woman, but he didn't do much better. I think he finished with about 14%, 12 to 14% on Saturday night. So, the, yes, Clyburn has, has a lot to do uh, with where the black vote goes especially in a crowded race, uh, and especially with, with Joe Biden on life support. But, you know, Bernie also lost it. And why do you think Elizabeth Warren didn't do better? The argument for her, which many of our colleagues at The Nation made very eloquently, was that while she had pretty much the same issues in proposals as Bernie, she would have been a stronger candidate because, first of all, she was a Democrat, she was younger, uh, she would be able to govern better. And because she was a woman, that's that's a pretty good argument. And yet her campaign is, you know, is about to die. Well, you know, I think 
Honestly, Warren took it from the left, right, and center. You know, we perceive Michael Bloomberg, RIP. Uh, I'm very happy that whatever happens with Warren, she, her campaign outlasted Bloomberg's. We perceive uh, Michael Bloomberg as coming in because Biden was weak. That is true. Uh, because Sanders was rising. That is true. But I think he really hated Elizabeth Warren. And I, you know, I think that she, she was really his target. So, so she took it from him. She took it uh, since before Saturday in South Carolina, and definitely before Super Tuesday. The, the establishment really coalesced around Biden. I mean, Harry Reid, who'd really been a mentor to Warren and, and wanted her to run for Senate, uh, and, and was really reportedly torn between her and Biden, Harry Reid went, went in for Biden. So, the, you know, the, the centrists went in for Biden and, and against Warren. And then finally, you know, our friends on the left, I guess Warren um, miscalculated, thinking that all those people who said, run, Elizabeth, run, and all those people who said, I'll vote for a woman, but just not Hillary Clinton, I, I want Elizabeth Warren, she thought they were telling the truth, but they really weren't. And so when she distant, distanced from Bernie a little bit on uh, Medicare for All, she was trashed when Adi Barkin, the great, great activist who is dying, came out for her. He was trashed when she, in my opinion, told her truth about Bernie telling her she couldn't win as a woman before they both ran. They flooded her with snake emojis. So the left came for Warren as well. And of course, the media erased her, as I've written repeatedly and talked to you about. So she, she certainly made some mistakes, but I think she she wound up having the most enemies in the field, and and that that surprised me, and that really hurt her. The most surprising thing to me about this whole event of Super Tuesday is the way it has violated everything we thought we knew about what it took for a campaign to win. We have been saying for you know half of our lifetime. It's the ground game. It's the face-to-face, yeah. door-to-door work. It's the committed people talking to their neighbors about candidates. It's a mistake to throw all this money into TV. Don't hire the consultants. But Joe Biden won in states where he had no ground game at all, Zero. where he had Zero. no paid staff. And Bernie has had this massive you know, volunteer organization and paid staff for- And Warren, o- too. You for know, over, Warren, I- yeah, and Warren, yeah. too. For over a year, they've been working at this. So uh, what happened to our understanding of how politics works in America? A couple things. You know, obviously, I feel like you're quoting me back to me because I've (laughs) been saying that. Yes. And, and you know, when I've covered the other races that I've covered, covering the rise of Democrats in Virginia, that's all been true, John. It it may be that Bernie and, and Warren, to some extent, were organizing in the wrong places, but the media matters, and the media was against both Warren and, and Bernie, I would argue. There's not really a Democratic establishment because there was nobody who could clear the field. But when push came to shove, the establishment did coalesce around Biden. But I would also say, just like it was pretty idiotic to count Biden out, everybody out, and anoint Bernie the front runner and the presumptive nominee after three races when he won Nevada, admittedly, he won by a lot. That was stupid. It's also stupid to count Bernie out now. There's still a long way to go. We still, you know, as we speak, your state of California is still counting votes. It's not likely, but it is possible that when all those votes are counted, you know, Bernie could erase 
Biden's delegate lead or really narrow it to almost nothing. So we don't want to go too far in the other direction, even though Biden's three-day comeback, I mean, he rose, you know, almost as fast as Jesus did. And we've (laughs) never seen that before in American politics. So, you know, it's not nothing. There's a reason we're talking about it. But it but it's not over either. Let's talk about Bloomberg for a minute. It is one of the great satisfactions, as you say, is Bloomberg uh, withdrawing on uh, Wednesday morning. He said uh, six very important words on Wednesday morning. I will work to make Biden president. Actually, it's seven words. By all accounts, he has by far the most sophisticated big data operation in, in politics. Uh, how much of a difference is this going to make for Joe Biden, do you think? I think it could make a huge difference. Uh, you know, I, I, I have to say, like him or not, and I'm not a huge fan, Michael Bloomberg said he would put that at the service of Bernie Sanders if Bernie was the nominee as well. And I, though he's endorsed Biden at this point, I, I hope that's still true. Uh, although Bernie said he wouldn't accept it, which I understand, but, you know, it's got to be all hands on deck uh, against Donald Trump. And, and you know, Bloomberg brings a lot of, of data sophistication, a lot of digital sophistication um, that, that more, than, more than Bernie or Biden has. So, you know, if Bernie's the nominee, I hope he finds a way to uh, accept that. But, it, but at any rate, I think it's a big I think it's a big deal for Biden because the existential fear of Trump that made, I think, I know a lot of people in all the Super Tuesday states who went into Tuesday thinking they were voting for Warren, but voted for Biden. Um, you know, there there's a there's a terror um, that, that is appropriate. Um, I, I wish it hadn't manifested itself for Biden, honestly, but it did. And that's where we are putting that together with with Bloomberg's Money and data and digital, you know, could could really cover over some of the very genuine problems with with the Biden operation. So if you were an advisor to Bernie Sanders this morning, what would you tell him the campaign needs to do now to uh, to regain the lead starting? Let's starting out in Michigan. Well, he won Michigan. Uh, He, you know, came he came from behind and really surprised uh, Hillary Clinton. So he could do that again. I mean, I think the most important thing I would say is to take your lead from people like your campaign and pain manager, Faz Shakir and uh, Jane Klebe, a, a great supporter from Nebraska, and do not hound Elizabeth Warren out of this race. Stop your people from blaming her for the fact, for, for your losses on Super Tuesday. Just Stop it. Act like you want to lead the Democratic Party, not that you want to burn it to the ground. The suburban women who got the House uh, for Democrats in 2018, they are, with the black community, they are powering Joe Biden. Try speaking to them and try having your supporters stop calling them hysterical wine moms. Just try turning down the hate and turning up the love. Because I know there are loving people in that campaign. Some of my best friends are among them. But you are not going to win the nomination of a party that you continue to hold in such contempt. So I would say accentuate the positive. Reach out to the black community. Reach out to suburban wine moms. Reach out to even women 
who don't support you and African-Americans who don't support you. I was very disappointed that he skipped going to Selma in order to campaign in Warren's home state of Massachusetts. Uh, he should have gone to Selma, which is a historic civil rights site, but also the site of a Super Tuesday state. Um, but it was more important, apparently, to go humiliate Elizabeth Warren than to talk to the black community. All that's got to change. And there are people in his campaign who know it. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Joan, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Yeah.